Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Mark Shaken is back to talk with us today about his latest novel, Unfair Discrimination. It's the third volume in his 3J legal thriller series, powerfully described by one reviewer as the gold standard for modern legal thrillers. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on the author. Mark Shaken lives with his wife Lauren and their dog Emily in Denver, Colorado. He schooled at Haverford College and Washburn University and practiced commercial bankruptcy law for several decades before moving on in 2019 to write, volunteer, and play music. Mark has written three legal thrillers to date, Fresh Start, Automatic Stay, and Unfair Discrimination. Before getting into fiction, he wrote, and just like that, essays on a life before, during, and after the law. Mark is currently working on his next book in his legal mystery series titled Cram Down, and you can learn more about Mark and his work at markshakenauthor.com. Well, hi, Mark. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. The last time we talked, I looked it up because I thought, it's been about a year since we talked, right? But no, it's only been about six months. So you've been busy. Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we talked. Since the last time we talked, I finished the third book in my legal thriller series, Unfair Discrimination, and it came out just about a week ago, just before Christmas. Wow, that was fast. So when we talked about Automatic Stay the last time you were on the show, had you already had Unfair Discrimination written at that point? No, I kind of had it outlined in, in Unfair Discrimination. I had to do a fair amount of Civil War research, so I had done most of that, but I hadn't started writing yet. Okay. And so what is unfair discrimination about? The basic story is that the lawyer, the hero of the books, Josephina Jillian Jones, 3J to her friends, she gets hired by a committee of creditors to represent them in their interests of trying to get repaid from rural land developers Mm. who filed uh, chapter 11 with a different lawyer at the helm. And she gets hired, but one of the uh, members of the committee The leader of the committee is actually also the leader of a white nationalist organization that's on the government's domestic terrorist list, of all things. Mm. And he quickly realizes that he isn't going to get paid back everything he's owed and as quickly as he wants to be. So the story is about what he does to try to influence getting repaid quicker and more money and how the sort of the relationship between a black female attorney and a white nationalist, you know, devolves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So, and, you know, the question I guess that the book asks is how far will the hater go to get paid back and what, what's he going to do in the name of white nationalism to do that? Yeah. Wow. So you had a lot of history to research, you said. is that Was that all part of it, the white nationalism? and It was, but less that as much as going all the way back to the 1850s and even the 1820s in the United States and what was happening then. Maybe people don't realize it, but Uh, Many think that the Civil War was fought over whether Kansas was going to be a slave state or a free state. And one of the nicknames of some of the places in Kansas is free staters. And the Civil War began in Kansas five or six years before it began for the rest of the country. 
But before the Civil War broke out, Missouri was up to be admitted as a state in 1820, and there was a big dispute about whether Missouri was going to be a, a free state or a slave state. It came in as a slave state. And it came in under something called the 1820 Missouri Compromise, which outlined, uh, at least in Congress's view, which states would be free and which states could be slave states. And so all of this then percolates for 30 or so years, culminating in quite a bit of war fighting, mm-hmm. pre-Civil War war fighting in, in Kansas and all the border towns between Kansas and Missouri, as some People from Missouri came over and were uh, killing free staters, killing blacks, t- stealing black people back to the slave state and enslaving them. It was kind of ugly yeah. part of the Amer- American history. And all of that is important in unfair discrimination in the sense that this uh, white nationalist can trace his heritage back to one particular person who is real. So part of the fun of doing uh, historical fiction is you can grab things that are real and keep them and change things that, that are fiction then. Yeah. So the real real part was a guy named Quantrill, William Clark Quantrill, who was the head of something uh, infamously called Quantrill's Raiders. And they would sneak over into Kansas and conduct raids and uh, mass killings and then sneak back to their enclave in Missouri. That's interesting. So that's kind of like where you got your bad guy from. Yeah. And there are famous battles that occurred in Kansas City, one of which was considered one of the turning points of the Civil War, the Battle of Westport. And that's discussed in some of the prior books as well. You know, Westport's history, the Westport District, as it's now called, its history in in the Civil War annals. And uh, that plays uh, a big role as well in the new book. Mm. So where did you get the idea to write this story? What inspired this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. None of the books, uh, if if, if I'm good at what I do, none of the books are inspired by clients I had or lawyers that were either on my side or opposing counsel in cases that I had over the decades, you know, in court. I don't want to go there. Uh, I don't want a client to pick up a book and say, damn, that's me, because that would be bad. That would be wrong. Um, So it's not based on any particular case that I actually had during my years as a, a bankruptcy lawyer. So it's just sort of there. <laughs> and and I, I can't say it's inspired by people I hung around with, because I certainly didn't hang around with people in Kansas City that were white nationalists. But I think it mostly comes from the things that I'm, I'm interested in, you know, parts of American history, uh, certainly jazz history, which is really prominent in Kansas City. And it's you know, place, prominent place in the whole history of the development of jazz in the United States. You know, barbecue, hard mm. to live in Kansas City without loving, not hard to live in Texas without loving barbecue either, but you know, <laughs> the two barbecue capitals of the country. And all of that just sort of comes together in a stew and out comes the story. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you title your stories after bankruptcy terms. I was wondering if that was kind of a roundabout way to come to the story. Did you find a term that struck you that you wanted to write about? No. um, You know, there's some prominent bankruptcy terms in the business reorganization world, unfair discrimination being one of them. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that the judge presiding over the case has to determine that there is no unfair discrimination. So double negative. So there's no unfair discrimination um, with respect to how a creditor is being treated. It's kind of an odd part of the bankruptcy code because it suggests that discrimination is okay as long as it's not unfair, whatever that means. It's not defined. Yeah. And it's a nice juxtaposition for you know the non-bankruptcy world and whether there is such a thing as unfair discrimination. You know, in other words, permitted discrimination. Is there anything that's 
about discrimination that could be acceptable and good, which you know, probably not. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of how Congress wrote the bankruptcy code and how the rest of us live our daily lives. Yeah, I was going to ask you what unfair discrimination meant, because it, it's such a contradictory term. But- yeah, the book talks about what type of discrimination the judge has to wrestle with, what types of discrimination are okay and whether that okay type of discrimination applies to the bad guy in the book. Mm. So is he going to be allowed to be treated differently than the other creditors? In other words, discriminated against. And, um, you know, without giving it all away, that's a big thing the judge has to wrestle with. As much as he would dislike the bad guy, he still has to apply the law and figure out whether, you know, what they're proposing to do to his debt is appropriately discriminatory or inappropriately discriminatory. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to wrap my head around that one. I guess, you know, for listeners just learning about your series, can you give us a little bit of background on your lead characters, 3J and Pascal? Sure. 3J, uh, Josephina Jillian Jones, is a New Orleans native, grew up in the Lower Ninth Ward. Her father worked in a factory, and he wanted her very much to take the education train out of New Orleans and not take the graduation train back. So Mm -hmm. she went to college in Whitman College which is uh, in Southeast Washington, and then law school in Topeka, Kansas, which is where she was interviewed by her mentor at the law firm, William Pascal. 3J is an African-American female partner at a large Kansas City law firm. He is, of course, much older than she is near the end of his legal career. He's her mentor and her close friend. Their backgrounds couldn't be more different. She of the poverty line in New Orleans in the Lower Ninth, and he of the Western Kansas farm town who got out of that town by playing baseball at Kansas State University and then on to a law career. But the differences between them are intentional. And my hopes that in presenting characters from different backgrounds and certainly different backgrounds than me, that I get to portray their differences as part of our strength and not part of an Achilles heel. Mm -hmm. She is, well, I consider her like to be a very strong female. I I know she has her challenges, but what drives her to succeed? And then what are some of her biggest obstacles and how does she handle adversity? um, In my mind, her drive comes from her father and mother and perhaps more from her father uh, than her mother. Mm-hmm. In Unfair Discrimination, we learn more about her through the use of flashbacks to her childhood and then her teenage years and then her college years. And in the flashbacks, largely she's interacting with her dad. And I think that he and her mother instilled in her the idea that education was the train out mm-hmm. from uh, so many you know, of the things that grab a hold of you as a kid and then you know keep you in a certain place and that she didn't have to be there if she you know applied herself and went to Whitman uh that would be you know a, a huge positive you know she gets to Whitman and she has a conversation with her dad about how she feels uncomfortable cuz there's not very many black people there mm. um small liberal arts you know school that has a black population but not a huge one and they have some interesting conversations about that her challenges you know, are what I think are the challenges of any black female partner at a big law firm. You know, where do they fit in? How do they fit in? How do they, you know, become part of the the law firm tribe and feel like they, not only that they have a purpose, most lawyers feel like they have a purpose, but how do they feel like they belong? And how does the law firm 
either make them feel like they belong or give them the opportunity to feel that way or or not present that opportunity and what are the consequences of that and you know that that type of topic is something i can observe you know having been at a big kansas city law firm for 40 years mm-hmm. um but you know I, I don't really walk in those shoes i'm not a black female partner but hoping that i can portray the actual conflict without suggesting that i'm an expert on it having never actually walked in those shoes Right, right. So, I mean, it sounds like that could be a bit tricky, but from everything I've read, reviews on all of your books, it doesn't seem to be a problem. It seems like you portray her really well and you get some good feedback about that character. Yeah, I've been pleased at that same feedback that you saw. Because on the one hand, it is a tricky thing. On the other hand, you know, I don't feel like if I wrote only from the perspective of an aging uh, white male who used to be at a big law firm, you know, what would that mean? That all my characters are going to be aging white males at, at a law firm that, you know, that's just not the world I live in. It's not the society that I want to live in. And yeah. um, and so you have to take the step of, you know, saying, okay, well, we're a diverse society, so maybe the book can be diverse. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd want to read a book about a bunch of old white guys. <laughs> I wouldn't, <laughs> but, you know, but that seems like the natural consequence of having uh, the conversation turn to you shouldn't write that kind of character. Right. And then what? Yeah, I know. I've heard that before, too. It's like, well, you shouldn't write about that. You're not you don't represent that that group. And I don't, but I can celebrate it. Ex- I think, absolutely. Th- through the book. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like 3J has grown over the course of your three novels? I do. You know, I kind of intentionally have introduced the reader to more and more about her over the course of the, the books. You know, the, the series that I've read over my reading life, uh, it seems to me that's something that when an author does that, I enjoy that. So I've tried to emulate that. Mm. Um, at, at this point, hopefully they're getting enough of 3J that they'd like to call her up and have lunch with her or something. And you know, the yeah. reader would, and, and I would too. So hopefully that means that her character is developing. Oh, I love that. I love that. Would I want to have lunch with a character? What a great way to look at, you know, character development. What about the story itself? How do you balance the the legal terminology and the environment with the stories to keep it accessible to all, you know, to keep it captivating to an audience without, I don't know, maybe bogging them down in legal jargon? Yeah, um, so I think that's a, a recurring issue for certain genres, the medical genre, uh, medical thriller genre, the legal thriller genre, those kinds of things lend themselves to too much detail, maybe, uh, mm. is one way of describing it. I've had some funny emails from what I take to be bankers in the world who have read some of the books and would write me and say, why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? Wouldn't this normally have happened in the <laughs> bankruptcy case? And, you know, the answer might be sure, sure, and sure, but that might be overkill because you have to kind of try to balance, at least for me, it's important for me when I do read the reader into the legal process that the process is accurate so that they're not sitting there looking at a TV show in an hour and then wondering, is that really what happens in court? So if there's a court scene, I want the court scene to be accurate. On the other hand, I don't want it to be so in the weeds that I lose the reader or lose their interest in it. And then all I'm doing is saying, yeah, I really know a lot about bankruptcy because the point of the books isn't to promote whether I did or didn't know the bankruptcy code when I practiced. <laughs> um, right. And I'm beyond that now. So even if I didn't, no one would care. Um, <laughs> but it is a, a touchy issue. And, you know, the first book, 
Fresh Start, after I wrote it, my wife read it. And so she's a veterinarian and I got it back from her with some lines through a number of pages saying, you know, not dumb it down, but too much. Ah. And, and so she's listened, you know, to me at the dinner table for decades. And I imagine that she is a very, very good expert on what is too much. Yeah. Um, but that kind of feedback is helpful. I'd rather get that feedback than, you know, share it with a lawyer before it comes out and have them tell me that it could have more in it, which I know it could have more. But the balance is getting enough law in there that it's realistic and yet doesn't step on the story. Yeah, yeah. You, you touched on a little bit uh, what kind of feedback you get from bankers. I was curious about what kind of feedback you got from the legal world as opposed to just a regular reader, say, you know, I'm sure it's different because like you said, the professionals want to point out everything they think should be in the novel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole idea of, of writing fiction is just uh, in the modern world is fascinating because we're a uh, how many stars did you get kind of society, mm -hmm. um, perhaps thanks to Amazon, but maybe that's just how it was heading anyway. And so you get all kinds of feedback and it it is really hard to sort of sort through what seems like oh, uh, something to consider uh, for the next book and something that, you know, I can't do anything about it. So I've had a number of readers write and say, I don't usually read legal thrillers because, and then, you know, they don't like all the law stuff and then, but, and then they write what they thought of the book and some of them liked the book and some didn't because it was a legal thriller. So what, what, what can I say? I mean, what can I do? It, it was a legal thriller that I wrote. And if you don't like legal thrillers, you know, maybe you shouldn't read it, but I haven't really had on the topic of balancing how much, you know, real law stuff should be in the book. I haven't had the non-lawyers jump on me and say that was way too much wonky, you know, law stuff. Mm. So, and I have, I think I've gotten better over the course of the three books in being able to handle that issue more comfortably, Yeah, at least on the writing end. So uh, I think it's got a, a decent balance, but you know, law books end up in court a lot. And if you're going to have a, a realistic book, the court scene should be what really happens in court. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing your blurb must be really fantastic because, oh, I don't normally like legal thrillers, but I picked your book up and it was really good. You know, I, went, yeah. oh, I wonder what <laughs> makes people pick up a legal thriller if they're into romance, say, you know? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe you're just looking for a break from the romance novel. The blurbs are incredibly important. As an author, perhaps you should spend a good period of time coming up with your, you know, your elevator, your three sentences. What is your elevator speech about the book? You have five floors going up in the elevator to convince somebody they want to read the book. What are you going to say? Yeah. Um, so I, I do, um, I don't know that they're perfect, but I do put a lot of thought into what the blurb is going to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I do a little bit of that when I write my reviews. I had, sure. I did have one author say, oh, can you write my blurbs for me going forward? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah. do you know how long it took me to write that blurb? Like three days. Yeah. It's it's amazing how much time you can spend on a couple of few sentences versus a couple of chapters. It's equally as time consuming. Yeah, yeah. So I know all of your books are based in Kansas City. You talked about that a bit. And you used to live there and now you're in Colorado. And how long have you been in Colorado? Um, six and a half years. Okay, so not that long. I uh, was just curious as to whether or not you think 3J will ever make the move to Colorado. So I think 3J is staying in Kansas City. <laughs> Pascal, who's older, 
waxed poetic at times when talking to her about you know things he might do in his afterlife after he finishes being a lawyer mm. and you know hiking around in the mountains is something that he drops as a possibility so there's probably more likelihood that in a future book pascal may start to head west for the mountains with a couple of exceptions there's a lot more of me and pascal for those that know me they chuckle when they read some of the things that pascal says <laughs> They think they think they've heard it over the last 20 or 30 years. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm curious to see, you talked about 3J and how she's grown a bit as a character. How have you grown and, and developed over the course of this series? Well, I'm having the time of my life, so that is a wonderful positive. Mm. Um, turns out I enjoy writing. You know, Until you do it, you're not really sure whether this is going to be a chore and something that you dread or something that you really look forward to every day. Luckily, I happen to look forward to it. So that's been a huge positive. I think I'm better at the whole process. I'd not written fiction. You know, all your years as a lawyer, you write a ton, but it, hopefully it's not fiction when mm. you're presenting it to the court. And then the first book I wrote was the memoir of a you know not famous lawyer. So that really delayed the whole process of um, becoming a fiction writer, and there's a learning process. It's different. It's fun because you're creating everything out of whole cloth. I think I'm better at it. Um, I'm more efficient at it, and I'm more attuned to you know what's about to happen. So if I get to page 150 of the book, I now know what the next 150-page writing process is going to look like, whereas for the fresh start, I didn't know. It was mm. all virgin territory for me. Yeah, yeah. So do you have a process? You know, do you plan it? Do you do you plot it? Or do you just write? No, don't just write. That at this point would probably be too scary for me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and having been a lawyer for 40 plus years, you learn that you don't just wing it. And so it somehow gets ingrained in your DNA that you do outlines, you prepare everything, you plan out everything, you address in your mind what could go wrong and how you'll handle that. And hopefully you cover most of what could come up. So for me, the book writing process is I'm pretty organized. I use a Microsoft product called OneNote, mm. which I use that because it's on my phone and it syncs to the same app on my laptop through the cloud. So I have my phone with me like any other you know, human right. almost all the time. And as ideas come up, I whip out the phone and open up the app and write down the idea because otherwise I'll get back home and I'll think, God, that was a really good idea. And I won't have any remembrance <laughs> of what it was. And I, I'll think I, you know, that was just that was the killer. Well, why can't I remember that? So I use OneNote, which is good for writing and then expanding ideas and then converting that into a pretty detailed outline. Mm -hmm. um, so the process for me is researching. Um, once I figure out what the storyline generally is going to be, then there's typically going to be stuff I want to research, either jazz history. Each book has a different barbecue restaurant in Kansas City to uh, somewhat feature. Oh. <laughs> and so I, you know, I have to figure out which of my favorite ones are going to be the next one up. And then I have to learn about the restaurant other than the, the great food that they serve. Well, that sounds uh, like it requires travel. Um, it, it, there are some road trips um, <laughs> to Kansas City. Luckily, Denver is not terribly far. And then I'm very regular. I try to write, you know, six days a week and book appointments for myself and then be there at the computer. And if I get 10 words that day, then that's all I got. But normally through this process, I'll get more than 10 words and I'll stay at least two hours. And if things are going well, I'll stay as long as I feel like I'm having fun. 
Wow, that's great. You know, and, and that ended up cranking out unfair discrimination in you know like under three months, which was you know for me um, stunning. I I don't know that I planned on that. I didn't. I, I have no set amount of time in mind that it's going to take to write a book. Yeah, but that one. That one. The whole process worked well. Yeah, um, it sounds like it. That, and that's why I looked up when we last talked because I I wasn't sure, but it didn't feel like it had been a long time. But that's I, I amazing. I published two books in calendar year 22. That was shocking. So I don't know what I'm going to do in 23, but <laughs> you know, 22 was uh, over the top for me. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That's great. Yeah. So what does your plan for the series look like? Will you continue it? I have one more, at least. Tentatively, it will be called cram down, another bankruptcy phrase of some notoriety. And then I'm not sure what to do. I want to sort of assess whether I'm oversaturating the world with 3J. If I'm not, then great. You know, there's been characters in much more famous fiction uh, and mysteries and thrillers than, than mine uh, that have lasted, you know, more than 20 or 30 books. So it's not that I think that three or four is all that the world could could take. Mm-hmm. And I have stories floating around in my head. It's just, it'll be interesting to see how I feel after the cram down uh, gets written. Yeah, yeah. You've got to remain interested in your character. And so I don't know if that gets old after a while or not. Yeah, exactly. You don't know until you finish the next book. And then you sit back and think, well, that was a a terrible process, or I don't really want to interact with 3J now for a year or so. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah. Well, that'll be interesting. So cram down. I actually, I looked up a few legal or bankruptcy terms to see if I could come up with the name of your next book, but I didn't come up with cram down. Yep. It's there. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get thousands of Google hits if you Google uh, cram down bankruptcy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So unfair discrimination just came out a week ago officially. So you will be busy, I guess, marketing that for now, or or have you started writing your next book? No, I try to give myself six weeks of the marketing effort there's um, a lot to do. I've learned a lot in that process. So there's a whole bunch of things I won't bother doing. It was educational, but not useful. Right. And just sort of focus on the things that A, I enjoy and B, seems to get to readers, which is the most important thing and a little bit opaque when you're an indie writer. How, mm-hmm. how do you actually get to the readers of the world and uh, compete with the thousands of other books that come out every day? Right, right. Do you do any like um, bookstore visits or anything like that? When I finished the first book, just like that, um, it came out the first week of April, which was the beginning of lockdown from the pandemic in Colorado. And I had all of these communications out to the bookstores, at least to start with in Denver, Um, the chains, and then the locals were more interest to me. And they all closed. They weren't considered to be a critical vendor of any sort. And so their in-person presence ended. Right. And that's when I sort of fell upon the whole podcast idea. And I think I reach more people and certainly in more geographic areas uh, with a podcast than I do at all with a a bookstore. And so the bookstore thing, I haven't uh, gone back to. Some of the, unfortunately, a number of the indie bookstores in this part of the world didn't survive uh, the pandemic. 
Yeah. It's a hard business anyway, you know, layer on top of that, a pandemic and it's brutal. Right. I'm not in any great hurry on the marketing plan to fold that back in. I have plenty of other things that I've been focusing on. Book clubs is one where you get in front of, so the idea of just like a bookstore is to get in front of people that actually are readers as opposed to just getting your name out there and then learning that 90% of the audience isn't really in the reading population. Exactly. Um, yeah. And to be a little bit more discriminating and identifying, am I doing something that's hitting readers or just doing something that gets my name out there? Both of which are fine, but I'd, I'd rather hit the reader population. Yeah. You know, I think with anything, you know, consistency is key. So it's just kind of finding what works best for you. Well, Mark, is there anything else you wanted to add today? Just if anyone wants to join my mailing list, they can do that at markshakenauthor.com. I don't spam people with tons of emails, but it's an easy and efficient way to sort of keep track of what I'm up to. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us again, Mark, and sharing a little bit about your latest book, Unfair Discrimination. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Mark Shaken, author of Unfair Discrimination. You can learn more about Mark and his work at markshakenauthor.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com.